Please join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we're starting a sermon series that we're going to be going through all the way into the third Sunday of Advent, so practically to Christmas. Um, And I hope that it's uh, beneficial for you. I think it will be. I found it beneficial just in preparing for it. Um, It's on the canticles. The canticles. I'm calling the sermon series, Sing an Old Song. Sing an Old Song. Why? The canticles are the church's oldest songs. Long before any praise songs, long before any hymnals, long even before the chants of the Middle Ages were the canticles. The canticles. What does canticle mean? It's Latin. Um, It's from the Latin canticum, meaning a song, and it's a short song. Why are the canticles so important? Because they tell us several things. They, number one, remind us who God is. And boy, we always need that reminder. Number two, they remind us who we are as God's people in Christ. Number three, they remind us of God's great deeds, all the things he's done for us. Number four, they remind us of God's love for his people, how much he cares for us. Number five, they call us and warn us. Because, as Jesus said in today's gospel, we have to count the cost of being a disciple. We have to count the cost. In a sense, he's paid it all. He's done everything. We know that to be a theological reality. But there is still a cost to it. And so let us sing an old song. You'll notice that almost all of the canticles in the Book of Common Prayer are taken from the scriptures, from the Psalms, from the Old Testament, some from the Apocrypha, and some even from the New Testament. And in memorizing these, we actually internalize a form of discipleship. We make a part of the faith, part of who we are. I don't know, have you ever been out and needed to pray with somebody and found yourself going for the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps in a difficult situation, reciting part of Psalm 23. It's that idea that you have something right there in your hip pocket, right? Part of the faith that you can pull out and say, yeah, the Lord speaks to that. He says this, right? Something beyond our own words. Something when our own words might, might fall flat. Because what they are, friends, is Scripture. And so part of how we worship, part of how we pray, is to worship and pray Scripture. God's very words to us, back to God. And that's a wonderful thing. It edifies us, strengthens us, glorifies God, grounds us. Mama Leah and I routinely uh, say the Nuke Dementis and the Fossileron with Bridget every night before we put her to bed. I wish I could say we did it every night. We don't, but that's our goal. 
But there's something to knowing that, right? To being able to stand at your child's bed and say, Oh, gracious light, pure brightness of their ever-living Father in heaven. Right? And continue on. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices, O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified through all the worlds. That's an eternal thing from generation to generation. So as we start this canticle series, we're going to look at each sermon at three things, okay? So try to look for these in today's sermon. Number one, ask the question, what does the canticle say? Simple enough question, what does it say? The text. Number two, how does the church use the canticle? And how has the church used the canticle? So how does it speak to God's people together? Number three, how does the canticle speak to me? How does the canticle speak to me where I am today? The canticle we're looking at today is called the Venite, which again is Latin. And it's just the fancy liturgical name for Psalm 95. So as we go through the text today, I invite you to open up your book of common prayer to page 14. And look with me at the Venite. What does the Venite say? Well, first of all, the Venite means what? Oh, come. Oh, come. It's a beckoning. It's a call. Julius Caesar famously said in 47 BC upon his victory over the kingdom of Pontius, Veni, vide, vice. Have you ever heard that? Veni, vide, vice. It used to be on Marlboro cigarettes. I'm not sure if it still is or not. Don't ask me how I know that. Um, But it's translated roughly I come, I saw, I conquered. I think it's actually I came, I saw, I conquered. Right? But the venite is to be called, not to come, but to be called to come. That we come. Our world is full of distractions, isn't it? And so that's the first point here. That the Venite says, come, come. The Lord says to you and I, come. Whether that's Sunday to church, or in our daily prayers, or in our Bible reading, or with our problems, and with our thanksgivings, come, says the Lord to us. And actually, David is saying, let us come. Let us come together. The psalmist is, is uh, David in Psalm 95. We know that because Hebrews 4, 7 credits him with it. Come, let us sing unto the Lord. The first thing should not be overlooked to come. What's next? Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. The word here, strength, is sometimes translated rock. Let us heartily rejoice in the rock of our salvation. 
The rock, rock is actually a better translation if you look at the Hebrew. I'm not sure why they reverted here to, the, to strength, except that it's a more traditional translation. And this isn't just poetry. This isn't just prettiness, right? This is actually referring to rock or boulder that is our salvation. And it's referring back to Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers 20, which Phil read for us today. Numbers 20. Turn with me to Exodus 14, if you have your Bibles with you, and look with me just at the titles. Exodus 14. What's going on in Exodus 14 at this point? Anybody can shout it out. Crossing the Red Sea. All right, Exodus 15. The Song of Moses. What else? Ah, the bitter water being made sweet. What else? Okay, 16, bread from heaven. Yeah, the feeding of God's people miraculously with manna. And then finally, Exodus 17. Water. Go on. Water from the rock. Water from the rock, which was the story that Phil read us from the Numbers account today. So, who is the rock of our salvation? Who is the strength of our salvation? This is an Old Testament prefigurement of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior of both the Old and New Testament people of God. And water from the rock here, water from the rock here, is an image being used because God provides life out of complete barrenness. And what happens? Look, if you've got your Bible still open, look at Exodus 17, verse 4. What's going on? You know, God has brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, across the Red Sea. He's led them by a pillar of cloud and fire, right? Done some pretty miraculous things. You know the story. You've seen the, the, the movie, Moses, right? The Ten Commandments. And how do they respond? They start grumbling, yeah? You see that? Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. How do God's people respond? They should be responding with exuberance and joy at what God's done for them, but instead they grumble and complain and threaten God's very prophet Moses. But let's continue with the Venite. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. And show ourselves glad in him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God. So again, who is the rock of our salvation? 
Why are we so glad? Why do we come with thanksgiving? Well, Jesus picks up on this in John chapter 7, verse 27, or 37, when he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here is the rock that gives us great gladness and great joy. And for those of us who are Christians, we have to ask ourselves, is this how I approach worship? First of all, do I come? Second of all, am I leaping out of bed on Sunday to come to church? Because I should be. I should be. That's the kind of exuberance that I should have. Now, look, I'm not perfect, and I'll be the first to admit I didn't leap out of bed this morning. Leah can testify to that. I had to be dragged a little bit. I was up till two last night working on some things. (laughs) But how do we treat coming before the very presence of God? Because if it's not the most important day of your week, if it's not the most important thing on your schedule, you've got your priorities wrong. And I'm not just saying that as a legalistic thing. I'm saying your priorities are wrong because you don't understand what God's done for you. Somehow you're being blinded to everything that he's given you. Somehow you're not thankful for him. And how can that be? Look, if you're an Old Testament person, he's taken you out of slavery, he's taken you through the Red Sea, he's fed you with bread from heaven, and you grumble, and you don't make him a priority. For a New Testament person, he's taking you through the waters of baptism. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. He feeds you at his table with bread from heaven. Every week, he promises to be here. He says, if you gather and do these things in my name, the very words of Jesus Christ himself, I will be with you. I will feed you. you. I will be in you and you will be in me. You know, uh, when I was at St. Michael's last year, I preached a little bit on this to the high school kids, and I told them that how would you feel if your best friend, if, if your best, you told your best friend, I will be at a certain place every week, and all you have to do is show up and see me. And your best friend never showed up or came once a month, stood you up. Are you standing up, Jesus? He's made a date. He keeps his promise. Come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the rock of our salvation. What's it mean to heartily rejoice? Is that just an English flourish too? It is a very beautiful old English word. But what truly does it mean to heartily rejoice? What do you think? Hmm? Joyfully and with gladness? Absolutely. Where do you think your hearty rejoicement originates? In your heart. In your heart. So you see, there's a problem if it's not originating in your heart. 
that problem is going to be revisited at the end of this venite. 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, we should exultingly, we should exultingly as those, sing exultingly as those who triumph in war and as solemnly as those whose utterance is a psalm. It is not easy to unite enthusiasm with reverence, and it's a frequent fault to destroy one of these qualities after straining after the other. I have to say this is true. Reverence for God's holiness and a solemnity for the reality of who he is sometimes leaves us feeling cold and overly formal to people. This is usually a critique of historic English and American worship. But at the same time, oftentimes those of us that are used to that look askance and with great suspicion at any expression of emotion, any energy, any enthusiasm. We see it as manipulative or insincere somehow. And Father Joshua and Deacon Mark and I were having this very conversation this week at staff meeting that this might be a cultural thing that we have to peel back because sometimes exuberance is viewed differently by different cultures. And sometimes solemnity is viewed as dead by different cultures, right? That's a complicated thing. But notice the Venite is calling us to both solemnity and enthusiasm because rejoicing heartily at being in God's presence is paired with come let us bend a knee and kneel down before the Lord our maker for he is a great God do you see it's both together why because it's coming from the heart a heart of thanksgiving for everything God's done making me enthusiastically glad and a heart of thanksgiving and solemnity for who he truly is to me, my God and my King. But there's more. Why does King David write this psalm in the first person? Let us sing, let us come. Our worship should have reference to the past as well as the future, right? We need to remember what God's done for us in the past, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. His track record's pretty good. He has a track record that's much better than the stock market. You ever heard the saying financially that performance is, an in, is not an indication of future results? You ever heard that saying? Performance is not an indication of future results. Maybe some of you have learned that lesson the hard way in investing. You have something that's doing really well and well, it's not going to be doing really well tomorrow, but you sunk a bunch of money into it. God is the opposite of that. Performance in the past is an indication of future results because he guarantees it. Look at what King David says. If you're still having trouble with your heart, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands prepare the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and fall down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. Look at that line. 
if you're still having a hard time, look at how great God is. The New English translation translates this, for the Lord is a great God, a great king who's superior to all gods. The Lord is the Lord of creation. If you've ever gone on a trip and seen a great expanse, whether it be the ocean or the mountains, and you think to yourself, the Lord has made this. That's what King David's saying here. On a trip that I went to, um, I went to Hawaii and actually had the privilege of flying over the lava flow in a helicopter. And you've probably seen pictures on the news that was in the news a few years ago because it was so powerful. But the lava was coming down and going into the sea, literally building land, expanding the island itself. God is behind that, behind the natural processes, behind all of what's going on there that he created. That's the God that we worship, a God of beauty, a God of wonder. He shapes the continents. He stitches together the plates. He's behind all of that. And the Venite reminds us here that God, that God, chooses you. Look at the next part. For he is our God. What God? That God. That superior God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That should sound familiar to you as a Christian as well. What does it mean to be a sheep of his pasture? Who else talks about being the good shepherd and having sheep? None other than Jesus Christ himself in John 10. It's that God who chooses you. It's that God who's walked you marvelously through the waters of baptism to the dry land of salvation. St. Paul draws this very parallel in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's the author of, of that's St. Paul himself writing to the Corinthian church. So if we're struggling to come and sing and worship wholeheartedly with enthusiasm and solemnity, King David recommends that we once again look at this. Look at the fact that it's that God who's chosen you to be one of his sheep, chosen you to be his people. Oh, come, let us worship and fall down and kneel before the Lord. For he is our maker, he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. We ought to never doubt the goodness of God. And it's actually an interesting theological reality that while we are unable to soften our hearts, only the Holy Spirit can do that, we are very able to harden our hearts with our wills. You have to have seen God, interestingly enough, to be able to harden your heart to him. So none of us can claim ignorance on this. We have heard his voice. We hear his voice. We read it in scripture. We hear it proclaimed from the lectern. We've encountered the living God. 
And it's precisely because we've heard his voice that we can be hardened. In the great litany, in the chants that we say in Advent and Lent, we pray in the fifth petition these words from all false doctrine, heresy, and schism, from hardness of heart and contempt of your word and sacraments, good Lord, deliver us. Look with what's grouped with the idea of hardness of heart. False doctrine, schism, contempt of God's word and sacraments and commandments. Good Lord, deliver us. The Venite doesn't mince words either if we continue on, right? Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. What's he referring to there? That Numbers 20 passage that we read is our first reading. That Exodus passage that I cited earlier. When your fathers tested me, and they put me to the proof, though they had seen my works, forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it's a people that err in their hearts, for they have not known my ways, of whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. What's King David talking about here? That generation of people that grumbled and threatened Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Moses himself, remember, wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. Why? Because they had hardened hearts. And so here's the last portion, the warning. And it's a warning that comes off to us too. Just as God's people should look to the past with thanksgiving for God's provision, so we should look to the past that those who have hardened their hearts and take warning for ourselves. This generation, the writer says, God himself speaks here. It says that he's grieved by that generation. It's an interesting Hebrew word behind this word grieve. It's a, comp- it's, a, it's a word that means both grief and loathe. So you can translate this, and other translations will translate this. The New English translation, for example, 40 years was I continually disgusted with that generation. Well, that's something when God says that about you. 40 years was I continually disgusted with that generation. Do you see the warning? But it also grieves him because he doesn't desire that. Ultimately, because of their hard hearts and constant grumbling, they're barred from entering the promised land. So, in principle, are we any different from that generation? The Venite asks us. Venite asks us. Do we find ourselves wandering in devotion to God in our use of time and money and energy and priorities? When we find ourselves saying, I don't have time to pray or read the Bible, what are we really saying? The Hebrews built a golden cow, but when we don't make coming to church on Sunday the most important event of the week for ourselves and our families, because we have some other kind of activity, we're being just as bad and hardening our hearts. The Hebrews came through the Red Sea together and grumbled and fought with one another, but when we take the time when we won't take the time out of our day to talk to and encourage other parishioners, heck, other Christians, 
who are made in God's image and baptized with the same water as you are, were hardening our hearts. The Hebrews were led by a pillar of cloud and fire through the desert and continually doubted God, even threatening Moses and Aaron's lives. But when we hear the gospel passage or other readings and say, oh, I've heard that one before. I know how this one works out. And just click, tune out. Or hide our faith because we're ashamed of the commandments of the Bible, seeing them as tiresome or old-fashioned or unsophisticated with our friends. We've had contempted contempt for God's word and commandments and are hardening our hearts. The Hebrews were fed directly from heaven with manna, the bread of angels, but when we are offered heavenly bread and holy communion with God himself through his body and blood and the bread and wine each week and we don't show up and we don't care, we're hardening our hearts. When we do these things or don't do these things, it's more than just one event. It's a chink, a chip off of your heart and a hardening of it. But the Venite calls us and says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. There's a story of an old man one day taking a child on his knee. He asked him to seek God now, to pray to him, to love him. When the old man looking up at him asked, why don't you seek God? The old man, when the, rather, when the young child looking up at the old man asked, why don't you seek God? The old man, deeply affected, answered, I would, child, but my heart is hard. My heart is hard. For the unbeliever as for the Christian, the time is now. Now is the day of salvation every now that we have until we die. And the Venite calls us to catch ourselves and stop and pray, good Lord, deliver me when my heart is being hardened. So the Venite is both a call to the Christian and the unbeliever. You were made to come, it says. You were made to be glad. I made you to sing and rejoice in who you are in me. You were called by the God who created the heavens and the earth. You are offered relationship with him. To be in him and have him in you. You didn't come see and conquer. He came and called you and you heard and he conquered. So in conclusion, from the earliest days, this Venite has been at the beginning of the service of prayer, calling us. For softened hearts don't complain and grumble, they sing. Softened hearts don't see what God has not given them, but what he has. Softened hearts don't see themselves as their own masters, but as his beloved sheep. I'll leave you with another quote from J.C. Sprawl, who writes, As the children of Israel sang for joy when the smitten rock poured forth its cooling streams. So let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Amen.